From Bloomberg Law, you're listening to Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. The evidentiary phase in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is now over, as both the defense and prosecution rested their case on Thursday. Mr. Blackwell. Your Honor, the state of Minnesota rests. Mr. Nelson, anything further? Hey, members of the jury, the evidence is now complete for this case. Uh, next step for you is to listen to closing arguments and then retire for deliberations. That'll occur on Monday. The question of whether Chauvin would testify was the subject of weeks of speculation. Ultimately, Chauvin decided to plead the fifth. Had Chauvin testified, he could have been exposed to devastating cross-examination with prosecutors replaying the video of the arrest and forcing Chauvin to explain frame by frame why he kept pressing down on George Floyd's neck. It's probably worth just reminding listeners at this point, Chauvin's facing three charges, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. The jury will be instructed to consider each charge separately, meaning Chauvin could be found guilty of one charge but acquitted of the others, or similarly, he could be found guilty or innocent of all three. So where does that leave us today? Obviously, prior to the verdict, it's hard to speculate what may be in the minds of jurors. Among many of the attorneys I've spoke with over the past six weeks, there seems to be widespread agreement that Chauvin faces an uphill battle to emerge from this trial without being found guilty of a crime, which sets up what would surely be a move to appeal the verdict. With me here to discuss the merits of a potential appeal is Glenn Kirshner, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and current NBC News legal analyst. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast. Before we speculate about the appeals, I'm just wondering how effective you thought the defense's case was over the short time their experts testified. Yeah, the defense did itself more harm than good. You know, sometimes the better part of discretion is not calling defense witnesses if Those witnesses are going to be so weak that the jury is going to feel like, is that the best you've got? You know, the marquee witness was obviously the forensic pathologist, Dr. David Fowler, who I know well. Uh, I used him as my expert witness in the courts of Washington, D.C., back when he was the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland, uh, back when he performed, in my opinion, the way an expert witness should perform. He is now in the business of basically selling his services. He's no longer with the government. And I could not have been more disappointed with his testimony. Just disappointed because that's kind of not the expert forensic pathologist I know him to be. And, you know, his his testimony itself was really, was really problematic. Here is Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell questioning Dr. Fowler on cross-examination. You told the jury that Mr. Chavez's weight was 140 pounds, didn't you? That's the information that I was provided, yes. Uh, were you not told that Mr. Chauvin was wearing equipment? That was not considered as part of the process. I agree with you, Counselor. And so you didn't factor in the weight of his equipment that was also on the body of Mr. Floyd. Is that true? That is true. Going right to the punchline on carbon monoxide that you talked about at some length, you haven't seen any data or test results that showed Mr. Floyd had a single injury from carbon monoxide. Is that true? That is correct because it was never sent to I the laboratory for that whether, test. I asked you whether it was true, sir. Yes or it no? It is true. Do you know if, in fact, the car was on or not? You didn't 
see any information or data from anybody who says I either turned the car on or I'm the one who turned it off. You didn't see either one, did you? Correct. What was it specifically about Dr. Fowler's testimony that you found problematic? Yeah, so first of all, if we can tackle Dr. Fowler's opinions regarding the cause and manner of death, uh, all of the expert witnesses called to the stand by the prosecution, and they were many, and they were across multiple medical disciplines, and they were truly expert witnesses, whether it was the cardiologist, the pulmonologist, the two forensic pathologists, the, the toxicologists, and they all generally had a consensus in their opinion, and that is that the death was caused by low oxygen levels in the blood due to the police restraint. Police restraint that we know from other witnesses was uh, in violation of Minnesota police policy, was unreasonable and was excessive. So I thought Dr. Fowler was going to come in and and say, um, you know what, the only medical professional called as a prosecution witness was Dr. Baker. He's the only one who actually performed the autopsy, who put hands on the body, and who has an opinion that you should really credit as fully informed. And then I thought he was going to try to explain away some of Dr. Baker's findings. But when he stood up there and he testified that, you know what, all of those experts were wrong. It had nothing to do with low oxygen. It had nothing to do with the restraint being applied to George Floyd or the positional asphyxia due to the positioning of his body. Instead, it was his heart disease. It was drugs in his system. It was a small tumor in his hip and it was because he was put too close to the tailpipe of a police vehicle. And it wasn't even a homicide. It's an undetermined death. Can I tell you as a former career homicide prosecutor, those opinions are laughable. They're not supported by the evidence, forensic or otherwise. They're not supported by the toxicological results of the tests that were run on George Floyd's blood. And to say that this was an undetermined death and not a homicide is it really does a disservice to the science of forensic pathology. And I can go into why that is, but it's probably an hour long class. The defense also called Barry Broad, a former police trainer and use of force expert who testified that he thought Chauvin acted with objective reasonableness and current standards of law enforcement in his interactions with Mr. Floyd. Uh, Police terminology is called one-upmanship. So, you know, police officers don't have to fight fair. They're allowed to overcome your resistance by going up a level or resorting to a different force option to let them accomplish the goal of getting you to comply. So what do you make of this discrepancy? Is the MPD just circling the wagons and hanging Chauvin out to dry? I'm not qualified to judge here, obviously, but was Broad an effective expert in your opinion? Yeah, I am qualified to judge because I worked police excessive force cases, including ones that resulted in fatalities when I was at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And this Barry Bod, this defense use of force expert, I'm going to cut right to the chase. We all saw with our own eyes how that force was excessive, was unreasonable. And we had multiple police officers representing the top brass from the Minneapolis 
Police Department where this incident occurred, saying this violates our policy, the policy that governed the behavior of Derek Chauvin and his fellow officers. And for this guy, Barry Bodd, to come in from the outside and say, all that force was just fine, not excessive at all. And then a marquee bad quote from him is, he said, and you know what? The police don't have to fight fair. That's a quote. I mean, he really was a train wreck of an expert witness. As one attorney explained it to me, a big part of what Chauvin's defense team is trying to do in this trial is to set up a number of potential avenues for appeal in the event of a guilty verdict. So did you see anything over the course of this trial that jumped out at you as an obvious cause for appeal? No. So uh, I watched the case closely to see whether I saw any significant errors being committed. And I will say there's only one that caught my attention that I predict will be the marquee appellate issue raised by the defense. And it's a straight-faced appellate issue. The judge concluded that Maurice Hall, the gentleman who was in the car with George Floyd, together with Shawanda Hill, when the police came up and got Mr. Floyd out of the car, he was an important fact witness because he could testify about drugs he provided to George Floyd, about the effects that those drugs had on George Floyd generally and on this particular occasion. He actually had important information to provide to the jury, but he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So we often in criminal trials have constitutional rights collide because the defendant under the Sixth Amendment is entitled to compel witnesses to testify in his favor. And a witness has a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination when called as a witness. So the way the judge resolved that collision of the constitutional rights is he decided that basically Maurice Hall's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination wins and Derek Chauvin's Sixth Amendment right to call witnesses in his favor loses. That's a problematic ruling. Now, he basically, and there's a whole deep dive we could do on the rules of evidence regarding statements against penal interest and how the judge ended up ruling, but basically the judge said, because I think there's enough other evidence developed through Shawanda Hill's testimony, through the toxicology results, through everything else that the jury does know about, including about George Floyd's drug ingestion, I find that Maurice Hall's testimony is, is of limited significance because the jury got enough other information that I'm going to preserve Mr. Uh, Hall's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and I'm not going to find a way to force that information in front of the jury, even though there were some ways he could have done that, including a nuclear option. But I think that's the most significant appellate issue I've seen in this trial. I predict it will lose on appeal, but I think it will be the subject of robust appellate litigation. You didn't think the announcement of the $27 million civil settlement with Floyd's family or the denial of a change of venue motion were cause for appeal based on a tainted jury? No, because we have this fiction in the law that jurors are presumed to follow the instructions of the judge. And in every case, the judge says, do not pay attention to any outside reporting on this case. And if you do, 
you're required to bring it to my attention. Then the judge will vet that information with the juror to make sure that the juror can promise to put it out of their mind, not have it enter into their deliberations in the case. And we indulge this fiction in courtrooms every day, but it's it's a fiction that keeps our criminal justice system up and running. Because think about it, if we didn't presume that jurors would disregard inadmissible information that came their way, we could really never get to a verdict because there's always stuff being blurted out in court that's inadmissible. And what does the judge say? Strike that from the record. And I, I instruct the jury to disregard it and not consider it. That's the fiction that we operate under. That goes for this kind of publicity surrounding a trial, even though the $27 million settlement, I think, can be viewed as an enormous consequential admission of guilt by the police department generally when they paid to settle this wrongful death claim. So Glenn, all said and done, or at least as it's been so far, do you think Derek Chauvin got a fair trial? I think he got his due process and then some. He had a competent defense attorney. People are criticizing Eric Nelson because he is not making a better showing in defense of his client. What I keep saying is you have to understand, not every case lends itself to a compelling defense. I've tried strong cases, I've tried weak cases. The strong cases, the defense attorneys will often sort of fumble around trying to find something to persuade just one juror that there's reasonable doubt. And frankly, a lot of the the evidentiary alleys that defense attorneys run down, they're dead ends. Some of them are laughable. And I think we saw some of that in Eric Nelson. I think he did the best he could, given what he had to work with. But I do think Derek Chauvin got a fair trial throughout. And I think the prosecutors did a masterful job. Very understated. I'm a little bit more bombastic. I would have torn people up on cross-examination. I have a different way about me in the courtroom. These people were so restrained, so circumspect, so sober, throughout the proceedings. And here's the other thing I have to mention. We all, those of us who are old enough to have watched the O.J. Simpson trial, we all saw that circus. It was a circus from the perspective of the defense team, the prosecution, Judge Ito couldn't control the proceedings. What we saw here was really, I think our criminal justice system and our jury trials at their best because of the civility, the professionalism, the decorum of everybody, the defense team, prosecution team, and Judge Cahill. Really, my hat's off to them because this is what the public, the viewing public, should think is is what a criminal trial is like. Of course, even more attention's now being focused on the Twin Cities as yet another police shooting happened just last Sunday when 20-year-old Dante Wright was shot during a routine traffic stop. Kim Potter, the officer in that case, appears to have accidentally shot Wright when she thought she was holding her taser instead of her service weapon. Here's Ben Crump, the attorney for the family of Dante Wright, who also represented the family of George Floyd. I am just shocked, and I am upset. I am outraged. It's just so unconscionable and unbelievable, Reverend Al, that within 10 miles from where the trial regarding the killing of George Floyd is taking place, that a police officer will yet again kill another unarmed black man. 
a time in America when the police should be on their best behavior. If ever there was a time when they should use their best standard of care, if ever there was a time when they should use their best discretion, if ever there was a time, Reverend Al, when they should be de-escalating on every situation, it should be now, and especially in Minnesota. I mean, it's just, I cannot even believe it. Glenn, obviously this isn't the kind of thing you want happening just as the jury in the Chauvin trial is about to consider the evidence to have the entire city re-traumatized all over again. Yeah, anytime there is a police excessive force incident, it's horrible timing. There's never a good time for that. But in the midst of a high-profile racially charged trial is perhaps the worst time. But what I'm, I'm glad we're seeing is we're seeing these Um, excessive force incidents being taken deadly seriously, being investigated, being prosecuted aggressively. I mean, Officer Potter, who mistook her gun for her taser and killed Dante Wright, um, they charged her immediately. And I can tell you in the past, that's not what we generally see when there's an allegation of excessive police force. So hopefully, We're beginning to learn our lessons and we're beginning to take these incidents seriously. And if anything screams out for real police reform, not banning this chokehold or banning the use of a particular weapon or police tactic, that has no hope. Those kind of things will not alter the behavior of a Derek Chauvin. It's wonderful that we're catching excessive force on video, but we saw the incident in Virginia where two local Virginia police officers abused, demeaned, and assaulted an army lieutenant. It was wonderful that they were wearing their body-worn camera so we could see what they did when they violated his Fourth Amendment rights. But, but we have to learn that banning police tactics, chokeholds, putting body-worn cameras on officers will not have an impact unless we do a better job of vetting the people that we decide to entrust with a badge on their chest and a gun on their hip and the authority to order us out of our cars. My last question for you, Glenn, is whether you have any insights or guesses about how long jury deliberation may last. I've heard some experts say it could be as little as one hour or it could take weeks. Yeah, there's, so I tried cases for 30 years. There's a rule of thumb, um, but we can't read too much into it. The rule of thumb is a quick verdict is a conviction. I would call it a good verdict, not surprisingly, as a former prosecutor. Quick verdict generally is a good verdict because if we have presented a strong case to the jury, we've been through indictment, we've been through trial, we think that, okay, we got it right based on the evidence. We persuaded 12 jurors and they were ready to convict pretty quickly. Here's what works against that. In a case like this, in my experience, jurors want to be super thorough. So they're probably going to very methodically spend time going through the testimony of each witness, examining each exhibit that was admitted into evidence. What I've seen my juries do over and over again is they put the big old white paper sheets all over the wall and they draw their own diagrams and charts and lists. So I don't think we can expect a quick verdict out of this jury. I think they're gonna wanna be serious, sober, deliberate, and really take their time. But I do think we're gonna see convictions on all counts, including the most serious. 
Glenn Kirshner is a former federal prosecutor and current legal analyst for NBC News. Glenn, many thanks, as always, for your time. Now, great talking with you. One brief note relating to the verdict. Judge Peter Cahill has said that if a verdict comes late in the day, the result will be announced the following morning. And that, dear listeners, is where we will leave you for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening.